Tom Bull. Um, yeah, I'm general manager of Lampro, based at Holbrook in southern New South Wales. Right, there you right. go. Short and sharp. Short and sharp, straight to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot to talk about in sheep. So it was good, um, to get, good to get Tom on to have a chat about the sheep industry. Uh, although, yeah, no, it's I should great probably, to be here. I should probably start with a story, Matt. Oh, yeah. Oh, have we got any complaints and compliments yet? We have, we haven't got, uh, I haven't got any complaints this last week. No, I don't think I have. I don't think I've got any complaints yet. Oh, we have got we have got some. It, it, it is only Thursday. No, so... but the last one we did was just the two of us, and there were some people saying we should change the song because it's mm. it isn't relevant. It isn't relevant oh, now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah um, so. but I do have a story about Holbrook. Oh yes, you do. Yes. So I was I was looking at investing in Holbrook this week. I, I was I was driving through. I stopped at the bakery. I spent a lot of money in Holbrook. I bought a calendar, like a from Satch and Co. Yep. And uh, bought a pie, but I also looked at a shop for sale. There's two apartments and two shops for sale for four hundred thousand. On the yep. main street. On the main I, street. On the main street. And I was thinking that could be the new AP three office. <laughs> <laughs> Until he showed me the photos inside. There's not. It, a, there's absolutely a, nothing wrong with it. Uh, Submarine, submarine capital of Australia. It's um, it's moving ahead in leaps and bounds. So I was, I was thinking, I, I might be moving to Holbrook. Pro- probably, probably won't, but uh, there's always a chance. So we should probably jump into the uh, six cents. Six, six cents. Yep. <clears throat> Tom, you've uh, you've had a few podcasts you said off off air. So we'll just do the six cents. That's just a quick word association game just to warm you up. So we'll fire a couple of phrases or a word at you and you just come back with either one word or a very short phrase that first thing that comes to mind. Very nervous. Yep. Andrew, do you want to kick off? Favourite band? ACDC. Only been to five concerts in my life. ACDC five times. Well, there you go. That's a a pretty reputable one. Uh, The sheet price, correct? Scottish band as well. It is too. Sheep price correction. Large Australian sheep flock. What's it called? What's the word for it? Those sheep with no, with no wool. Oh, shedding sheep. Shedding sheep. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> uh, it's it's early morning. You know, <laughs> struggling to get shears. <clears throat> A premium lamb. Massive opportunity for Australian lamb. Cost of meat to consumers. Uh, there's a cut for every consumer in lamb. Haggis. Yeah, I was going to say haggis. Haggis. <laughs> uh, Braveheart. <laughs> Braveheart is in your Braveheart if you eat it or just, you know, reminds you of Scotland. Or dead pit at the farm. <laughs> have you eaten haggis before, Tom? Uh, I have. I have played. You I've just said it. There's a, there's, a, there's a cut of lamb, or there's a lamb dish for every consumer. Haggis is part of that mix, I guess, isn't it? No, I think it's great. I mean, I yeah. I love the use of non-traditional lamb cuts. So yeah, bring on haggis. We need more. We need more haggis in the world. Exactly, and I, and I think you know what's what's the price of lamb just now? Like for a, a lamb at the sale yard, 
Oh, well, $4.50. I'll see if we encourage more haggis like I've been saying for the last two years. It would be $4.02. You know? Excellent. We need to to encourage it. Right on. Any way to get get onto the menu? I I was actually surprised, Tom... That Andrew didn't throw in any references to rugby in the um, in the sixth sense. Yeah, way too soon. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, you know what we we might uh, we might beat Portugal and uh, Georgia might beat beat Fiji. We're a chance, but uh, yeah, no, it's way too soon to be talking about that. Where's Scotland? I don't know. I don't follow. Yeah, no, Scotland are in the mix. They've got a pretty hard pull. They're going to have to pull off yeah miraculous. Recovery, but um, you know what? I actually reckon it's the best Scottish side I've seen in 20 years, so you just never know what's going to happen. Scotland, Scotland's got a tendency to only win in the hardest achievable way. Like, we'll, <laughs> we'll get beat by every third rate team, but we can yep. go on to win against decent teams. Well, it's at least in, this, in this, the case of soccer. Yep, no, nah, there's I've been loving the loving the World Cup photos. There's been plenty of kilts and naked bottoms in every rugby podcast I've seen. So uh the Scots have certainly turned up in France in force. <laughs> the old the old alliance. The Scots love the French, don't they? Yep. Uh, um, so we'll get into it. Now you mentioned at the outset there I spoke about that sheep price correction and you said sheep flop. So do you think it's just it's just a matter of Oversupply. Have we been a victim of our own success here that we've grown the flock so quickly and now with a bit of turnoff and maybe not enough processing capacity, um, it's just come back to bite us? Yeah, it's it's the old thing that happens post-drought. We see bubbles form. And I always say when people are keeping terminal ewe lamb, so a dorsal white suffolk ewe lamb for breeders, we're in trouble. And that's what happened post-drought. You know, you had ewes making four or $500 and the better the lamb price got, the more ewes that were retained. You know, six, seven, eight-year-old ewes. You know, we were going on the farms. There was nine-year-old ewes. There was Dorset ewe lambs everywhere, which, you know, traditionally have always been bred for slaughter. And to me, you know, that that model always is going to pump numbers hard. You know, where all of a sudden you get an extra three age, two or three age groups in a, on a flock, you know, you retained. And the better it got, the better the it more got. They, and the more they held. And so it was more valuable to hold that ewe for another year. Get a yep. few more lambs out of them and happy days, right? But then now this year, and then the flip side, we're in the absolute flip side of that. So yep. the worse it gets, the worse it's going to get. And obviously, the compounding factor on that is I see, you know, we're, we've got a 2006 selling mentality. Um, you know, we're just seeing everyone who's got it in their head they can't keep sheep. You know, high grain prices. Um, everyone's got a let's just get out and duck for cover. Um, you know. Don't quote me on this, but I, uh, you know, so but don't act on this. But you know, I see it very much like 2006. 2006, we're selling store lambs for a dollar a kilo live. By middle of January that year, they were a dollar ninety. So you know, we've just seen this max exodus. Take what you can get. Um, fundamentally, the break evens for processes aren't terrible. You know, we've seen we've actually seen a lot of positive movement in some of the markets. So you know, we're not seeing the processor or the market sentiment reflecting anything that's happening in the yards at the moment. We're just mm. seeing this absolute flood of sheep hit the market and we have no ability to handle them. Yeah, but and that's, that's the thing. That, but that's just that's, sort of, that's sort of standard supply and demand economics, isn't it? 100%. 100%. If, if, you, if, you, if you're going to throw a lot of sheep into the yards or, or into the abattoirs, it's going to depress prices. 
you know, that's what we've seen in every every other commodity. Yeah, if you look, probably the, yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, if you look to, to the, like what you are saying before, to the export side of it, we've had actually a really good season in export demand this year. Like it's improved, um, you know, lamb's probably above average slightly, but particularly for mutton, it's been gangbusters this year in terms of the flows we've seen. Um, so like you're saying, the, the, the demand side of the equation isn't probably the, pro- the issue. It's, it's really um, the ability to process that overwhelming amount that came through so quickly. And I think at the end of the day, historically, we've always done all the processing plants have gone double shifts in these this environment. So, you know, the the the, the canary in a coal mine is how fewer plants are able to do double shifts. And that's, you know, typically over 20, 20, 30 years, which I've been involved, you get these big turnoffs. Everyone clicks into double shifts. You know, we suck them up, we put them into boxes and they'll find a home. Um, that's probably the big difference is we just can't, we haven't got the labour to do a single shift effectively. Um, and I think really when we look at what's the biggest issue for the sheep industry, it, it's all this, the meat supply change is labour. Um, yeah. And it, it's not necessarily just a meat industry issue. You know, it's a horticulture issue. It's something, you know, just all of a sudden post-COVID, um, we don't seem to have any people left in Australia. Mm. We need our unemployment rate, you know, we need our unemployment rate to rise for the meat industry. You know, I think the best thing for the meat industry, and, you know, I hate to say it, we need our unemployment to probably get to 6%. Um, you know, that'll force people to actually start turning up at processing plants, looking for work. And my conversation with even some of the Melbourne-based processors, they're just not getting anyone turning up looking for a job. Yeah, you know, well, it's... it's I was chatting to a processor just the other week and he was saying that they just started doing a Saturday shift and they, they so they got the guys in for the Saturday shift and then because they got, you know, the, the weekend rate or whatever, um, then they didn't show up on the Monday. Yep. <laughs> you know, because they had, you know, they, they did the Saturday. So it's like you can't win, right? You're trying to in, in, increase the kind of throughput in the, in the uh, abattoir and, um, you know, and, and because the... The, the worker can be pretty picky as well, right? Because they're they're in high demand, um, so they don't have to necessarily, um, you know, bust a gut. And the Pacific Island Agreement, the real flaw we saw last week was when Fiji beat Australia. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, half of Fiji didn't turn up for work those next few days. So Australia needs Fiji to be knocked out of the World Cup <laughs> because a lot of our a lot of the people boning out our lambs are on the Pacific Island Agreement of Fijians and. Uh, you know, they like to party hard when, when Fiji wins. So there's a few other issues going on as well. Yeah, and, 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 and I never I never thought of that as an issue. Maybe that's maybe that's what should be addressed is uh remove Australia from all future competitions. <laughs> there's all but there's also but but that's a good point though. Like there is unemployment. If we do see sort of a bit of a drawdown in the economy, we should see a unemployment increase again. But we still need more immigrants as well. We need more, more visas, whether it's from the Philippines or Brazil or wherever else, because I just don't see that whilst we can get those Australians to do the job, I just don't know how good they're going to do the job because it's hard work. And a lot of Australians are not necessarily used to doing that sort of hard manual labour. It's also got an element of it's not the most pleasant working in an abattoir. So. Absolutely. And that's, you know, you look at some of our investments at the moment. Like I look at Shearers and go, is my, are the, my mates, sorry, is the, 
are the mates of my 15 year old son going to go to Burke and spend two weeks shearing sheep? Mm. Um, you know, I, I look at labour and I look at generational change and attitudes and stuff and and I think there's a real fundamental. I think mechanisation hopefully will just keep creeping in processing plants. Um, you know, there has been with all the Scott, Scott technology, mm. um, you know, we are increasing the automation. Shearing, obviously, you know, it's a million-dollar question. Um, it's a real worry for me um, in terms of who's going to shear sheep. Um, for the same reasons, you know, we've just just discussed, you know, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, I can't see the 14s and 15-year-olds now um, busting themselves um, to shear sheep. And that's, yeah, that, that changes everything we do when we look at what's got to happen long term. Like, it, like is that- she- shearing is good money. Like shearing is fantastic money. It's hard work though. But it's hard work. <laughs> yeah. Like my back would give out in – 10 minutes but it's i just don't see like i think you're right i think that was sort of 14 15 year olds not going to consider shearing because it's just too hard even regardless of money and especially if they could potentially just go to the mines which are still paying big bucks that's the problem yeah. that, that whole aspect of the the issue is particularly for for the wool side of the sheep industry um and those that i guess have still got um you know, some kind of crossbred operations or something where they're still requiring to, to cut wool, um, you know, and even even with the, where the prices are for that are pretty are pretty dismal for the for the crossbred stuff. Do you think that's part of the reason why we're seeing this you know increased interest in that shedding variety? You mentioned when we said shedding varieties in the in the sixth cent, I think you mentioned shearers as the as the key, wasn't it? Was what you said? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, and and we see it. You know, we've always. I've always kept the wool on our sheep really about skins. You know, I always say when Pamela Anderson walked down the street in Ugg boots, you know, skin prices went to $35. Um, you know, so are you doing 150% was producing $50 of skins? Um, you know, I suppose fundamentally we sort of look and go, well, do we see that skin price coming back? You know, do we see that strong wool price coming back? And when I remove myself and think about it, I think with crossbred wool, I do I think, I don't think AWI have done a great job with crossbred wool. You know, all the all the money has gone towards you know life. Fine, fine, yeah, 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 yeah. It actually hasn't gone to try and 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 I always think to myself fundamentally. You know, well, I'll see a newsletter and they say, oh, we've we're managing to use wool in roof bats or something. You know, I've got a real problem that if we're always struggling to find a home for it, you know, should we produce it? Given it probably costs the average client a month of their year is taken up with wool. You know, yeah. so here we are talking about labour. We're not just talking about shearers. We're talking about a month of our year, of the year, you know, potentially tied up with doing a job that costs us. So, so many of these things, you know, I try and look back at the macro, you know, and the micro trends and go, I just think everything we do in agriculture at the moment has got to be less labour. So it's a natural progression, you know, that all of a sudden we take the wool off. You know, I think really for us, Three four years ago, we really saw that this is going to become a big thing, um, and and you know I think it's exciting. You know, as a breeder, um, you know I love breeding sheep, and I think it's really exciting. You know what we can do genetically. Everyone talks about cropping productivity, and you know the amount. You know we look at long term grain prices; they haven't really moved that far, but it's been the productivity growth. And I think we're going to look back over these next ten years and look at the sheep productivity growth. And you know some of the labour-saving things. You know we're we're really getting rid of drenching. 
you know, foot ride is going to become a thing of the past. Um, and I think shearing is going to become a thing of the past. And I think we'll look back and say, well, out of adversity, we're actually going to see a real positive change in the industry. Like what you're saying there as well, then, then if you look at, say, the sheep space and, and the differences between enterprises there, that for those that are kind of straddling the fence a bit and got some meat sheep but a bit of crossbred wool, that they need to, as we move towards, say, a future industry, we've got to, in the meat side, we've got to target the premium rather than the commodity side. And that can mean then that you say, right, I'm going to dedicate my my on-farm, what I'm doing, my focus is going to be towards genetics and getting the right kind of meat breed if I'm going to go down the meat path and just forget about the wool, go shedding, yep. you know. And then if you want, and if you the opposite side and you, you love your wool side, you say, right, you know, we don't worry so much. You know, we're focusing on our, on our wool production and that's what we're doing and we've got to go fine and that's it type thing, right? Is that is that it? It just becomes like a real specialisation? Yeah, well, I, I think we're going to see the next decade the concept of alignment become more importantly. You know, if you're a wool producer, you might be tied up with a New Zealand wool, you know, or a, mm. you know, or a retail or an MJ bale or something, you know. And I think lambs are the same. I think the notion of just producing commodity sheep and hoping someone buys it is going to be, you know, I just have a problem with it. I've had a problem with that for a while. And really, you look at a lot of stuff we've done, it's, it's all about alignment, trying to understand what the market wants and actually then try and, it's it's easy to be able to conceptually do it, being able to practically form a number of steps in the supply chain to be actually, you know, pass value down. That's been quite difficult, but I think you know we're quite optimistic of what's going on. And and but everyone in sheep, I think we've got to be aligned. We've got to be specialised, and just this notion of producing whatever you want, I think, will become a thing of the past. But then it's about also what developing a recognisable brand and some provenance around that product or around that particular type, right? hundred percent. I just think, you know, I always say we haven't done anything innovative. All we've done is try to follow the beef industry. You know, 20-something years ago, you'd have a steak and, um, you know, it could be anything. Yeah. Um, now it's Wagyu, Angus. My favourite my favorite beef brand is Rangers Valley. They're WX5. Mm. You know, I love their WX5 product. And every time, it doesn't matter what box I crack open of a WX5, it's exactly the same. Well, we had and Rangers Valley Wagyu ruined steaks for me. Yeah, at 100%. <laughs> and, and you know what the interesting thing is? Once you start eating really good lamb, it's hard to go back. Mm. And that's where I don't think we've actually really captured that. The, the reason the beef industry... People have just dropped their portion sizes about really good stuff. You know, people talk about the price of meat, but remembering the richer the meat, the less you need. You know, like our, even our cutlets, our 7% IMF cutlets, you don't need six, you need two because they're rich. So everyone talks about price point. No one really forms that link between portion size and quality. And I'd rather eat 150 grams of Range of the Valley WX5 than 400 gram of you know poor quality rum because we had it that time and i think that's the growing trend because we had it that Mm. time in kingsley's didn't we in Mm. in, In sydney in sydney and it was just fantastic there's two steaks in my life that i can remember was that rangers valley one and the steak we had in perth with harold seeley with harold seeley and (laughs) that was just out of this world I, I was going to ask you a question. I was going to ask you a question, yep. Tom, about about uh, lamb. You you put up a picture this morning on Twitter. Yep. Of 
uh, milk-fed lambs in Sydney. Yep. And that looked fantastic. Like, it's, yep. it really annoyed me because I was actually hungry. And it was, yep. <laughs> t- t- tell us about that, actually. Well, again, you start talking to chefs. So, you know, there used to be a really good milk-fed lamb brand into Sydney based just north of Wagga. And really, they've, they've, they've fallen off, you know, the cliff face. So we just decided to start sending a few 14, 15-kilo milk-fed lambs of a client near Canoundra into their Hampi program. You know, and all of a sudden, you know, I can tell you now, like the eight of the best restaurants in Sydney this week are serving, serving milk-fed lamb. The producer, I don't mind saying, you know, $10 a kilo for lambs basically straight off lamb marking. And I don't, you know, do I think it's a sizable market? I think it's a seasonal market, but I think the concept is you've just got to look at the opportunities. And I think, you know, I, I think the thing I love about that is chefs love provenance. They love seasonality. They love the concept of being able to tell their customers we're in milk-fed lamb season, you know. And I think as a brand, we're trying to offer diversity, you know, that, um, you know, we've got different brands. And I, I just think it's a little project we did, but the feedback's been insane. Looks, so, you know, we're going to... looks absolutely fantastic. And the, the feedback, honestly, you know, you look at... It's in Icebergs, it's in Margaret, you know, it's in Fyador, all those top Sydney restaurants, you know, have all got milk-fed lamps and, you know, all of a sudden that, the client who did it, and we, we organised this months ago, he's probably going to do better than any lamb in the sale yards this week. Um, and I think it's just, you know, we keep saying, let's not look at the issues, let's look at the opportunities. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to be truckloads of lambs, but it's still, I just think it's, it's an idea that, you know, talk to the customers and see what they want. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been extremely well received. Is it is it possible though over time that, that effectively the whole of the industry can move towards that model? Like, is there enough, I guess, premium demand domestically and globally for the product that that we can do that, or will there always still be a space for that commoditized land product? I think there's always going to be price, but at the end of the day, if you can make two billion dollars worth of wagyu disappear, and probably seven billion dollars worth of Angus beef disappear, you know, we're only talking, you know. A millions of you know of in that lamb in that premium lamb space. So, I mean, I've been to all that. I've been to the US. I've been to China. You know, I've been to Singapore. I've I've made a point of going to a lot of these markets this year. I'm about to go to Taiwan and just trying to understand. You know, the biggest problem the lamb industry has. I see. If we look at cutlets, are only five to five point five percent of the carcass. Mm. So much of what we do is cutlets, you know, so much of the rhetoric's about cutlets and the price of cutlets. But I don't think cutlets is, we don't focus on cutlets at all. You know, the big three, cutlets, loin, rumps, they'll always look after themselves. Mm. The biggest issue we see with the industry at the moment is square cut shoulders rolling out at $4 a kilo. Now, there's two parts of this. Number one, the most marbling you get in a carcass is in the forequarter. So it's, it's, it's greater at the front of carcass. And if we look, so all of a sudden, Japanese, Korean barbecues, you know, so much of the beef industry's value-adding has been not by scotch fillets. It's being able to get, you know, like we've got neck fillets in Asian restaurants now, you know, highly marbled. And I think that's where the opportunity is, is not, you know, the big three cuts, which might only be 17% of the carcass. It's going, what do we do with a four-quarter? You know, mm-hmm. so... That's probably been the biggest opportunity I've seen. Everyone talks about premium lamb, but I think people actually break a carcass down and understand. So we see Asia, 
we see highly marbled four-quarter cuts. Um, the legs, for example, you know, one of the biggest pub chains in Sydney, we've just started rolling out leg stakes, you know, highly marbled leg stakes. All of a sudden we pull the, you know, we pull the top side out. You know, it's a very marketable product. So I think marbling and high-end quality is going to change what we can do with the carcass because at the moment, you know, we just look at p- people are just putting square cuts into boxes and shipping them to low-value markets. And I think, you know, that's where the real value can change is basically, you know, looking to do value-adding. But it's working out, well, what do we need to do? We know for an Asian market, we need to get that IMF above seven. You know, yep. that will give us really good, highly marbled forequarters that we can create a lot of value with. And that's a target, 7% IMF kind of score in terms of the lamb 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 product and th- what's what's the like that that's what you guys are trying to achieve at lamb pro what's the how does that compare to say your average australian you know processed lamb what, what are they coming at roughly as a as an imf uh so the average australian's 4.1 yep um the average new zealand's probably a tad under two the average european lamb um is probably two and a half oh so we're already so when you look at our com- we're already above we're, the, we're already the global above. We're already above. So I, I look at it and go, let's try and blow the world out of the park. And the one thing I came back from China, I went to the CL trade show in Shanghai. The one thing that I came away with was how much good premium beef is in the world. You know, what Russia's done with genetics and Angus beef is insane. You know, what South America has done, you know, the Chinese Wagyu was insane. And the and it was probably the, the most exciting came, thing that came back was how bad the world's lamb is, you know, and it's everyone look talks about the comparative, you know, long term vision of beef versus lamb. There is not, there's not a lot of good lamb in the world, so we need to give you that, you know, that Kingsley's experience. That once you get a high end customer or chef that tries a seven percent lamb, you're not going to lose them back to a one point eight percent New Zealand product. So that's where we see, you know, the opportunities and. Um, Globally, I think Australia is in such a good position to be able to really, really do well in that market. How much of the how much of that IMF is genetics, and how much is the feed regime? Uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's it's a combination of both. Mm. So you know, we need to feed them. Um, weight, age, time on grain have a have an impact on IMF. So really, our model was all based around trying to get the best genetics we can do and almost putting through a beef type system. So putting them on feed for 60, 70 days um, and then really trying to, um, you know, get that consistency. No different to what we talked about at Rangers Valley. We want to be able to open a box and everyone's the same. Um, You know, it was very small when we started, but all of a sudden now I think we're in 10 different countries. US is where most of it goes. Most of our clients' lambs end up in high-end restaurants and food service in New York. That's the biggest market for our lamb. Now, the other thing I'll qualify, the diminishing American sheep flock, really what we're trying to do is replicate American lamb because that's where a lot of our lamb's ending up. It's ending up where vacuum, you know, where American lamb currently doesn't go. So hence we want 30 to 32 kilo lambs um, to, to basically go in place of American lambs. That's the carcass weight, right? That's the so carcass quite. Yeah, yep. so heavy, so ex- heavy export type product, right? Hundred percent. Yep. And our ham shears are more like a thirty-four kilo average. 
Yep, yep. What you mentioned as well, so you and US, I mean, it's gone a bit off the boil this year, but the last two years, the lamb exports from Australia to the US were, were booming, right? Um, I think with the flood of American beef and where they're sitting in their, you know, kind of uh, fourth fourth year into their liquidation of the beef beef herd, they've had quite a bit of red meat floating around the place lately. So I think they went off the boil a little bit with demand, but I think that's going to come to an end this year as they start to go back maybe into a rebuild phase and they'll be looking for both imported beef as they already started and and, and I guess maybe starting to pick up on the lamb side again now. So it's a good opportunity. Um, but what, you mentioned Japan as well as one of the potentials and that's always a country that I've always thought with lamb was one that the, the average Japanese consumer was very unfamiliar with lamb and it doesn't get eaten a lot still there i believe um is that is that an, a missed opportunity or is it an opportunity still waiting to, you know or is, it, is it starting to develop well i think the biggest if we move back a step the one commonality in every market is the strong gamey flavor of australian lamb you know so unless you've been raised with it that really strong flavor is a big turnoff for a lot of customers and i don't think we talk about it enough so genetically and nutritionally, one of our biggest focuses is trying to get away from that really strong flavour. Um, and every overseas MLA office will say the same thing. You know, there's a lot of people who will just come out, put hand on heart and go, we are not lamb eaters. By putting them on grain, by changing the genetics, you know, it is more of a beef texture. And I suppose there's nowhere more that's more sensitive in these Asian markets. Yeah, they're, they're really don't like that. So the likes of a Japanese, there's two parts of it. When we went to the likes of a Japan, we started talking marbling, but the big feedback in Japan, China, Taiwan, and even the States is all about flavour. You know, they don't want that strong gamey flavour. So I think once we can address that and almost just add a little bit more subtlety to the flavour, I think that's what's going to create the biggest catalyst um, for growth. And that's Certainly, you've got to think the average restaurant cooks on fire now around the world. One thing restauranters consistently come back and say, we don't want a smelly bit of lamb because it can stink out the restaurant. You know, you know, like cooking a bad piece of lamb is like in your kitchen. So there's, I think when we started looking at the opportunities in these markets, it actually flavour became a bigger issue. Now, if we look at the current industry, we've basically got this vacuum cleaner of they suck lambs up, they put them in boxes. That could be a 13-month-old merino weather off canola. You know, extremely strong flavour, you know, and until we can segment flavour marbling in boxes, I think we're always going to have people who try lamb and go, no, I don't like lamb, it's too strong. It's a bit like when you go to a restaurant and get kangaroo. Like when you get kangaroo, there'll be four people and two people can have a great cut and the other two will be rancid. Yep. So it's sort of similar to that, just the lack of consistency. Yep. No, and that's – so we don't talk about flavour enough um, in lamb. I think it's it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a hush-hush issue, but it's, you know, I don't understand the science with fat, fatty acids in fat, but I think if we can address flavour, I think we're going to take market share off beef because really what a 70-day grain-fed Hampshire lamb, it's really like a – it's more like a subtle beef sort of flavour as opposed to a strong lamb flavour. And I think that's where we see the growth, particularly in all those markets, is, is doing that and then trying to get that consistent um, in all those markets. But it is a very common theme in a way, a resistance to consumption 
in every market is that strong flavour. You mentioned a couple of those key ones too, as in, in Northern Asia, China, US are all kind of focused in on that flavour aspect and not wanting it too strong. Would there equally, you, you said as well, if you've grown up eating lamb, say like you know people in the UK market, um, is, is, that, is the reverse true over there, that the consumer there actually looks for the, the lamb flavour? Well, I think certainly um, you know, there's no doubt the ageing effect of some of that stuff can make it subtle. There's two things, just going back to China, that hot pot market flavour isn't as a big issue. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you can put a rat in a hot pot and probably taste okay. Um, you know, it's more that barbecue Western style cuisine that flavour becomes an issue. Um, you know, as Professor David Hughes, who I love, you know, once said to me, he said, you put anything in a hot pot and it tastes the same. Hence, you know, 70% of that Asian meat is consumed in hot pots and hence why what protein it becomes is less important because it almost putting it in boiling water and putting it, you know, with some vegetable sort of flavours, it sort of nullifies the flavour of everything. Hence, yeah. it just becomes a pricing. So I see that flavour in that top-end market, but really that's where we're trying to really angle, you know, is that top-end Western cuisine-type um, market in China. UK, you know, we're about, you know, UK is one of our next projects. Um, you know, ha- I haven't had a lot of experience with the UK consumer, but that's uh, that's a bit of a watch this space. Just a quick, on a tangent, yeah? Uh, yep. Live export in Western Australia is going to be phased out probably. Well, we'll find out this month. Well, or October. I don't, I don't, uh, I think, yeah. We'll get, we might- there'll be an indication, I think. <laughs> um, do you think it'll be like for shedding sheep, like a lot of people are going to move out of Marinos over there? Do you think, well, What's your views on the shedding sheep's moving over there? Do you think there's going to be a huge demand for shedding sheep over there? Uh, I think any area that struggles to get phone service is a rule of thumb. You know, you're seeing our she- we're shearing here at the moment. You know, our, our shearer said that you know the contract rate of a, of another shearer he heard of was twenty two dollars to go to Burke. <laughs> you know, any of those remote areas. You know, I think we're going to see a move, and that's just fundamentally, you know, the cost structure of trying to attract labour in those areas is going to see a fundamental swell um, of change, and that's that's going to be necessity, and it's already happening now, irrespective of how passionate are about Marinos. I don't think is anywhere that's as as prominent as Western Australia, and I think there's an opportunity for Western Australians. I've actually been asked to speak at the WAMCO AGM in a couple of weeks, but I think Western Australia's got a huge opportunity. A lot of grain, you know, I think they're, you know, they've got a, a producer cooperative. Um, you know, I, I see Western Australia just got to, you know, do a bit of a rethink and say, well, what are our strengths here? You know, producer cooperative, you know, access to grain, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity um, for for the Western Australians to really align and work with that WAMCO cooperative to really change that industry out there. But is it also understanding that there are other pathways? Like if you look at what's going on, and particularly, you know, we see in the eastern states the sale yard pricing and what's been reported is is disastrous. But it's even worse in the west, right? Um, they, they've they've had a, a much tougher time of pricing. Does that kind of negativity and that kind of you know lack of confidence that doesn't encourage someone to say, "Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get some lambs and start 
you know, sticking grain down their throat and, and you know, because you, you just can't, if you can't see the end result and you can't see that you are going to get good pricing for it, you're not going to go down that pathway, are you? Well, I think that's a million-dollar question on either end of the country, you know. But I always say store lambs will give way to make finishing profitable this year, you know. So typically the most margins people make are when everyone says we can't afford to feed lambs. So I think you're going to see a bit of both. You know, I think you're <laughs> going to see store lambs, and we're already seeing it now, mm. give way. I said fundamentally I can't see any major market impediments. Don't get me wrong, there's, it's been suppressed, but it's not $4 a kilo. Um, so, you know, those $40 store lambs, um, you know, I, I see you'll see all you need, and I don't know when it will happen, is the processor to put in some sort of forward, you know, put a bit of spine in it. And I think you'll see a lot more finishing in both markets. While there's no assurity, you know, while sentiment's rolling, I think you're just going to see this offload. But certainly I think you'll see an opportunity to feed lambs this year. Yeah, I guess it's a bit like any market too. If you wait... If you wait for the confidence to come and you wait for the turn, you've missed the boat. So sometimes you have to, you have to kind of get in early. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know the old saying, "Fortune favors the brave." You know, mm. the the sad thing is, two years ago, store lambs were two hundred dollars. Everyone came in, bought them, got a dusting. You know, all of a sudden last year we saw those store lambs go to hundred dollars. Oh, gee, that's you know that's cheap. Let's go. But the reality is, a lot of people got dusted again. It's mm. just whether you know a lot of these finishers have got that third, you know, that third year. I, I I would have thought it's a year, but you know who knows. Um, you know I'd hate to people to go out on the basis of that, but I think it, that store land price is going to give way to make it work. Do you think there's a risk that you know we've had this sort of the high, really high highs in recent years, and now pretty bad lows? A lot of farmers are mixed farmers, the cropping sheep. Uh, do you think there'll be more people say, I've just had enough of this and, and well, just get out of sheep? 100%. And, and I, you know, you know, we'll, we'll openly say, you know, Bear has the average sheep producer at 64 years of age. Mm. You know, the average sheep producer in 2000 was 50. Yeah. You know, so you're seeing, a, to me, that, that speaks volume in terms of enterprise cho- choice of, you know, younger generations. They're basically... You know, and, and there's plenty of times we've been dealing with a, a 65 to 7 year old father who's still running the sheep side of the business to support his son's cropping habit. You know, um, <laughs> so you know, I, I think that's going to continue. I think you know, whilst we're seeing that uncertainty, and you know, Andrew, obviously there's no one to speak better than you, but I, I think all of a sudden it's just easy. You know, you get out, you cash in. You know, we're seeing a bit of optimism in that grain market. Um, what Vlad's doing over there. So there's no doubt it's going to, and I keep saying it's a positive thing, you know, and we wrote an article the other day, the worst, you know, there's a silver lining. You know, we'd love to see that sheep flock come back to 65 million. Um, there's no way, you know, that unfortunately to do that, there's going to have to be blood in the water. But our clients, I keep saying, you know, all of this is going to be a positive thing if we can get the sheep flock down. The, the limiting factor at the moment is the killing capacity to be able to get it down quick enough. Well, I remember... We went to it's actually a shake and sheep event. And oh, Ham- yeah, the, 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 Hamilton Cashmere yeah. Nudies, or whatever yep. they're called, or yep. Cashmore, yep. Cashmore, Cashmore, Cashmore. 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 Yeah. That was yeah. two two years ago, and it was Bill Malcolm talking. You, you probably know Bill, I imagine, Tom. Yep, yep. Uh, and he he was asked a question because a lot of the presenters were saying we need to get the sheep flock higher. We need to get 
you know, grow the industry, grow, grow the industry, grow the industry, yeah. grow the industry yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I've always been of a view that, well, you don't, growing industry for the sake of growing the industry is not that valuable. Growing the industry, if you've got the demand for it, it's valuable. And he had sort of said, uh, his view was, the industry will find its own level. But when you artificially try and grow the industry, that's only for, you know, what is it, the levy pair? Or the levy organizations. Levy organizations get value from a, a big flock, but does the industry benefit? Not necessarily. I'm 100%. You know, we're only talking 18 months ago. You got speakers saying, breed one for you, one for your country. <laughs> and, and I fundamentally don't think MLA should be spending any money whatsoever trying to increase sheep numbers. You know, we don't need any more money on increasing, you know, all the lambing percentage work. I think it's been done. You know, what we need to do is work out how we align production and, and markets into the same picture um, because we have had that narrative that the sky's the limit, um, you know, and just produce, produce, produce. But that's um, but that's a, farmer's, so, that's a farmer's thing though, isn't it? Like it's like when, when you talk to MLA or GRDC or, or any of these organizations, farmers are most turned on when you talk about production. Yep. And then we talk about markets because we love markets, but nobody's that interested in them for the most part. And yep. and so I think that's the thing. Like it's it's really easy to say, well, we'll put some money into productivity gains. We'll, we'll increase yields, yep. but you've still got to have a market. And that's the risk we've had in grains. Like you mentioned before, grain prices are pretty much the same as they were in the 1960s. Yep. But we just produce more. And, yep. it, and it costs more to produce that crop. So it's not necessarily a case of that productivity gains are probably, and for most of the past 40 years, have exceeded the demand gains. So yep. it's, it's a sort of a catch-22. Do you do you invest in production or do you, to an extent, stifle production and then hope that prices go up? I, I, I mean, I tend to say, you know, you look at the processing industry now, and, and we see it in some of the stuff we're doing. All of a sudden, when the US really came off the boil, we saw huge amounts of inventories. You know, the issue I see is, and the best comment I had was from a Chinese importer, major Chinese importer. He, he said, All Australian lamb is the same. We just buy on price. Why does he do that? Because at the end of the day, you, you see processor A is competing with processor B, who's competing with processor C in the yards, you know, for the same lamps. There isn't any point of difference. They're all the same. They all go into boxes. And the way most of the processing industry markets is price. Yeah. You know, if you can't shift inventories, what do we do? We drop our price. And it becomes a race to the bottom. You know, and that's – so when we look fundamentally what, you know, the whole concept is when you look at the industry, the beef industry, you got the beef industry, then you got the wagyu industry. The Wagyu industry is almost, even though, yes, it's 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 subject to all the same things, it's actually a different industry. I look at it and go, there's actually, you know, we haven't seen our returns change for all our good cuts in our Hampshire lamb at all. You know, we've, we've seen our secondaries, our bones, our fats, our breasts and flaps change, but we haven't seen any price change in the markets. And, you know, the our pricing for our clients is reflecting that. You know, we're still killing... $250 lamp. So, you know, I, I do think we've got to get out off this commodity price marketing basis 
And to do that, we've got to put together point of difference, which to me is a genetic nutritional strategy. And and that's where I think the industry is struggling. It's unfortunately how a processor makes money um, isn't necessarily aligned about how a producer makes money. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing though too that that what you've developed has taken this relationship and and there's brand behind that as well, right? So and and what you're producing is why you're able to still attract the pricing you're attracting. But you know that's for the for, you know, it's not something you can just turn on and turn off as a as a, as your average producer. You got to you got to devote a lot of time and effort into that side of the business, right? Hundred percent, and I and I say, you know, it's a it's an investment of a vision. You know, where you want to be. Um, do I think the premium lambs a real thing? I absolutely do. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, for me, it's it's just following that same beef, you know, concept. So, you know, the wagyu industry, the top end Angus industry, you know, it's very structured. It's still going to have highs and lows, but the difference is, and I come back to my time in China. There isn't any competition at that top end in the world. Where beef, you got huge amounts of competition. US beef, you know, South American beef, you know, and our genetics have gone everywhere. You know, Russia's genetics are probably some of the best in the world now. The beef. What, what, what your what your Chinese importer was saying though about he was referring to Australian lamb, saying we just buy on price because it's all the same. But effectively, yep. you could that's that's true of probably the global lamb market. It's 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 really just a commodity market irrespective of where the lamb's coming from. Right? I know there's still different quality of, you know, like you're saying before, the, the IMF and the Australian lamb's better than a lot of the competitor countries. But from a from a perspective of the of the buyer, the international buyer, for them it's just where can I get cheap lamb that's good enough? That's it. Right? And, and, th- and that's what has to shift. You've got to, you've got to then have, um, you know, a, a brand and, a, and something that's recognisable and also attributes that people are chasing. So like differentiation, I guess, isn't it? hundred percent. I mean, we're, you know, we're now, we're going to strength, you know, we don't mules our sheep, you know, there's a lot of us retailers who are now very high on animal welfare. Now, a lot of those retailers don't have any Australian lamb because we're mules. So straight away, there's another, you're talking about the milk fed lambs. We look at this market and go, you know, with our clients, we're doing a lot of environmental accreditation, carbon benchmarking, animal welfare accreditation, again, looking at the opportunities. Um, because a lot of the big suck lambs up, put them in boxes, will never be able to hit those markets, you know, unless you can get alignment. So, you know, I look at the world and look at the opportunities and, you know, straight away we're getting a bigger base of lambs which are certified for animal welfare. Um, straight away we're, we're all of a sudden all our Hampshire lambs are being basically, you know, being carbon benchmarked and, you know, continuous improvement program. And it, it does hold a lot of weight. The thing about the states, it's so big and there's so many retailers. And they've all got their little quirky points of difference. So I look at as a producer or someone who's in that is what are those opportunities? And there's a lot of game. There's a lot of markets that Australia can't play in because, you know, we just don't have that, you know, whether it be green, whether it be welfare, we don't tick the boxes. So, yeah, I, I see nothing but opportunity. But, again, it comes back to, what I discussed before, we've got to have alignment. You know, we've got to have, whether it be wool, you know, if you're supplying to country road, I suspect you probably can't mules. You know, I think we're going to see that emerging lamb. And I think, you know, there's opportunities to sort of, for producers to differentiate themselves from a, you know, from that hardcore commodity chucking boxes 
type type system which we're in now. Is is the vision something that the producer has to kind of you know run with, or is it or is it really something that, like you said before, the likes of an MLA or a Sheep Producers Australia should be should be looking at this and saying this is what we have to um, support the industry to move towards. Well, I think at the end of the day, I look at our own scenario. We've got a we've got a series of joint ventures, you know. So those messages come back down the chain. I don't necessarily think it's an MLA thing, um, you know. I think it's really what what the industry lacks, and I know I've said this before. We've got too many experts. We've got enough entrepreneurs. You know, the, the sheep industry lacks entrepreneurs. You know, when you look at what the big catalyst for beef, it was a few people who had ugly-looking wagyu cows in the 90s who are now running multi-million-dollar businesses. And I think that's the one thing the sheep industry learns. We're, we're, very, we're very bureaucratic. We're very political. We always look, you know, we always look at other people for our problems. But I think we've got to take it on the chin and say, you know, we've got to create our own opportunities. And so we need, the industry needs entrepreneurs. And I think... I'm very critical of even a lot of the speakers, you know, at the lamb conventions. A lot of the people speaking have never actually processed lambs. You know, I think industry needs to have entrepreneurs speak. And even the one thing I'll say when I go to a beef function, you'll have every top beef processor or brands speaking. The same thing in sheep, you'll have a lot of consultants speaking, you know, or university people. You know, I think the lamb needs a really big change in psyche and I think it needs to be something that's really entrepreneurial, you know, to get away from, we don't, we just can't go to AWI or you know, we the AWIs or MLAs to try and solve our issues. We'll do it ourselves. And they said, so when we look at the world, we look at what are the opportunities? How can we do that? How can we align that? How can we pass value on? And, and you know, whilst you know, by Christmas, we're only looking at 4,000 lambs a week you know, we see the opportunity to grow that significantly. Um, and more importantly, you know, we've got clients this week are still killing $250 lamps. You know, the market hasn't changed. They've been on long-term price contracts. Um, so, you know, that's what's exciting, um, I think. Um, but, yeah, I, I, the industry just needs a reset, um, and that's got to happen at every forum, you know, Entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs. So, from that perspective, then this this current doldrums of pricing is an opportunity for the industry to reset and say, look, you know, we don't want to we don't want to get stuck in this boom bust cycle. You know, we want to we want to change the dynamic of the sector. Hundred percent, and and you know, that producers got to do it themselves. You know, I think we got to yeah, the processors are really good people. You know, you know, and I I've actually really got to enjoy getting another processors. But also understanding their business, you know, their margin plays, and they do a really good job at that. Um, but we look at the producers, and go, well, what change in beef? And I keep saying, well, what is the catalyst for change? I think competition's a catalyst for change. Yeah, you know, do you see in Sydney are any of the big four retail, any of the big four processors got product in any of the top restaurants? The answer is no. You know, to me as we see the premiumization of that top end, you know, you'll start to see brands change. And that's where I think that w- that's what happened in beef. You know, I'd imagine a lot of those big processors didn't have their own Angus and Wagyu brand 20 years ago. Why did they, why did all of a sudden processors start 
these premium brands because there's competition. But when you get those premium brands, yeah, like if you think Wagyu and Angus and you think of it from like a, an actual consumer's point of view who's got no connection to the farm, they know if they see the name Wagyu or Angus, they think that's quality. Don't look much further. That's where they see it. So they know that. And even so, like even McDonald's or whatever could do like a Wagyu burger, which is just partially Wagyu and offcuts and whatever else. Yep. What's the sheep equivalent going to be though? Like what's, well, I, what, you, it needs to be a brand all name. I can, all I can speak is what we're doing, Hampshire down, you know, breed brace branding works. You know, it's really simple for us to explain to a chef in Singapore, breed brace, breed base marketing. And that's why, you know, we've, we've taken that approach, you know, we're using breeds and we're trying to give that provenance, the story behind them. Um, but it's certainly, I think, again, you know, you just got to see, you know, producers wake up and look at that opportunity. And, and that the route to market is going to be a multitude of different things. But if you look at, I keep coming back to, all we need to do is keep looking at beef, how they change. Um, and it's, it's based on every time you open a box, it's the same beef. It's got a story. You know, they're all of a sudden, they're putting environmental stuff behind it. They're putting welfare stuff behind it. Now, all our lamb now is certified antibiotic-free. You know, I just think, um, yeah, you'll just start to see that emerging and competition will do it. And if you're saying too that, say that, say a Hampshire Down product, if you, if you strive towards a 6 7% consistent uh, IMF in, in the product, so then when you have that eating experience as the consumer, you can tell straight away this is quality, right? And you and like you're saying, once you've tried that, it's hard to go back to the standard three or three or two percent IMF. Um, and 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 then if it's branded as that product, you get to then know. Oh, next time I'm at the restaurant or wherever I am, and I see that brand, I've had that before. You know, that's my go-to. That's where that's where the premium evolves from, right? And 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 also, I guess the 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 ongoing demand for that product. Hundred percent, and I always go if you know the, the throwaway line I've used a thousand times. If the queen's coming for dinner, what lamb can you buy in the current market that can blow the socks off? You know, that's a conundrum. You know, mm -hmm. tell me how you can guarantee in the current market that lamb is going to eat unbelievably well. I think though we if, can't. If, if the queen's coming for dinner, we've got more issues. But... <laughs> sorry, the queen. Yeah, I should, I should actually. Sorry, you should update it. Should update it has, to the king. Yeah, yeah. That that hasn't aged that well. That was a landline thing I used two years ago. But anyway, but the concept is, if we are um, <laughs> coming from a Scott, coming from a Scott, um, but it, it is it is an issue, and you sort of think about that. So, you know, even if we're an occasion meal, you know, and I know you look at Mimi's in Sydney, six cutlets for one hundred and twelve dollars. You know. They walk out the door, you know. We always say we want to be where black credit cards are, you know, Amex credit cards, stockbrokers, no no concern for cost. Every, you know, they want premium and um the mat. So basically you're looking for mat. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. And then maybe in the old days, Andrew, when I was trading currencies nowadays on a meager analyst salary. Hmm. Yeah. But, I'd be but lucky. It's a mate, and I look at, you know, I love you know, I took our family. We went to Singapore. Actually, got some cheap Scoot Airlines out of Melbourne for nothing into Singapore, and we're in one of the best restaurants in the world. You know, they're about to open in Harrods. They're a seriously good restaurant, and uh, I got some big teenage boys, and I made them eat before they went. You know, 
just to make sure that we we, we spent two thousand dollars on food. I only had two beers. Now that's got a six month waiting list, you know. And at just that top end in New York, Sydney, you know, it is rocking. But pe- people will pay for stuff. And look, Matt, have you you've heard of this place called Loon? Uh, in uh, in Melbourne, is one of the fa- the top end restaurants. No, no, Cosantery. No. Oh yes, yes, I know that one. I do. I have it. That they only open. They only open like two or three days a week. Or no, it's open all week. Yeah, but like, I walked past it, and the queue was an hour and a half long to get a croissant. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure when they originally opened, they were only a handful of days. So it was it was yeah set numbers of days. But maybe they're full time now. It's yeah. crazy, and they're they're okay. But uh, yeah, you're talking nine dollars for a croissant, and but people are queuing for them down the street. Like it looked like a queue for a really good nightclub or a really bad nightclub, and people are willing to pay those sort of premiums to get something that they perceive to have value even if they haven't tried it before, but if they see other people eating it. And that's where, where like, so if you can get it into those high-end restaurants, Nobu or, you know, any of those type of ones that Matt and I don't go to, uh, <clears throat> then it, it trickles down, I guess. That- and and expe- so much of restaurants and eating out is experience. Now, the worst lamb experience I've ever had is in New York's 24th-ranked restaurant. It is single-handedly the worst piece of lamb I've ever consumed. For September last year, I guarantee you, it would have been a merino weather off canola. And we actually physically couldn't eat it. So the problem with lamb experience goes both ways. You know, we can't guarantee our experience because our current model, we've got a vacuum cleaner, sucks lambs out of a sale yards or a paddock, puts them in a box and then sends them stuff around the world. So really, you know, all we want to be able to do it as a restauranteur is minimise, you know, we want to basically ensure how that lamb's going to eat so they can ensure the experience of their customer is good. And that's the opportunity we see is being able to guarantee that through science, which is basically grading them for marbling. And really all all I see we, we're trying to do, same genetics, same feed, consistent product. So it's just it's controlling the variables in lamb production. Um <laughs> How often, as a consumer, how, and it doesn't matter what restaurant you go to, how often do you go into a restaurant and if you look to a beef cut, you've got a description of what it is, you know, Cape Grim, 150-day, grain-fed, whatever. Dry-aged. Yeah, all this, all this descriptor around the label, where it's from potentially, yep. you know, how, how it's been uh, raised, uh, you know, whatever, right? What the processing is, if it's dry-aged, you've got a whole what, lot of... What, what its name was, Daisy and... <laughs> A yep. whole, dis- whole lot of descriptions, and then you look across to the other meat products, including the lamb, and it just says rack of lamb or, you know, and roast leg. We openly say, we're saying to the chefs now, you know, we want to get out of the cheap seats of your menu. Mm. You know, we don't want to be the token lamb dish next to the chicken and the pork when beef you've got seven different options with, with you know, seven lines on each. You know, and that's a, that's a challenge we're putting to chefs, you know, you got to help us here, you know, why Why do beef deserve that? And really what it comes down to, and I'll say, what story can we tell? Hmm. You know, what, what information have we got? All of a sudden, we give them a breed, we can give them a marble score, we can give them a nutritional type, you know, there's a, and really that comes through in brands. 
So, again, we look at the doom and gloom. All I see at the coalface is opportunities for land. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't be more upbeat about the opportunities. And we haven't got heaps of competition. You know, we haven't got, you know, the South Americas and, you know, the Americas and, you know, all of a sudden producing huge volumes of high-quality beef. Um, so, you know, I think, I think you know, there's, there's some real positives out there. But if, when you look at the coalface and fundamentally, we need six different lamb products on a menu. Um, we we're actually so happy. Our win the other day, we we're at a place in Orange and uh, we got a very good salesman there. For the first time, we had more lamb dishes on the menu than beef. We had four, they had three. And that was in a steakhouse type environment. You know, we need to have more options. They had a shank, they had a rump, they had a loin. What did we have? All very... uh, what did we have at Santamo? They had lamb we've on been... the menu. No, we've been there a few times. Yeah. The, the sweetbreads. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they were, so, when, when you think about those, they were $30 for a little plate of sweetbreads. And how much would they have cost? So I didn't, <laughs> yeah. actually. Last week, Andrew, we sent we sent some sweetbreads to uh, a, the world's third best Lennox Hasty. If you actually look at his, um, if you actually look, he's got his own Netflix show. Yeah, he's yeah. got Fyodor in Sydney. Um, so yeah, last week he won sweetbreads. They are fantastic. They actually yeah, salt and pepper sort of. And yeah. I'll send you the photo. It is just brilliant. simple, simple food. Now the processor said, "Well, that, we just throw them out usually." Mm. Again, you know, and it comes back to the haggis. We've got to look more. You know, than literally the five and a half percent cutlets. You know, part of, sweet part breads. Of the, part of the process, saying we throw them out usually too, is sometimes because they don't have the labour to extract them properly, right? So they just you know. And that you is got- a, that. Granted, that is a big issue um, with all these cuts. Even boning, you know, we'll often get told from our processor who's been brilliant, they'll mm. go, "You only get to bone out the legs or the four quarters. You can't do both." Mm. You know, and that's a fundamental issue. It comes into labour again. Mm. There we are. Well, I reckon we've uh, we've probably covered off. We're, we're probably touching just on the hour, so we've maybe taken up enough of your time. You got you got some things to do, I'm sure, getting out there and you know continuing to make some good product available. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a long game, but um, you know we've got to sit back now and use a bit of hurts, not even from the Wallabies. You know, we got the worst result in history. You know, it's going to be a bit of a reset and. Uh, you know, everyone's looking for blood, but I think, you know, we've just got to do the same in the lamb industry. We've got to look at, well, what's working, what's not working. Um, and I think the one theme I give in everyone I speak to at the moment, we've got to look at the industry with an entrepreneurial flavour, not this industry telling us, you know, we, we can't be paying levies just to tell us to produce something. You know, we need entrepreneurs. We need to look at the market opportunities. And as I said, whether it be sweetbreads, you know, whether it be haggis, whatever it is, we just need to keep looking at the opportunities and they are there. Um, you know, New Zealand sheep population plummeting, um, you know, I think I can see nothing but opportunity in that, in that high end and, um, you know, I wouldn't want to change industries for that way. So, Tom, would you say you're bullish on sheep? <laughs> 100% bullish and um, more so in the last six Red. months. Ramish. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. So there's always an opportunity to go by deep pool to sh- change it to Tom Ram. No, no. I, uh, 100%. 100%.
<laughs> right, 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 right. Well, thanks for thanks for coming along, and uh, it's made me think about lunch because I'm yep. I'm starving now and thinking, geez, I could fire up the barbecue and go to calls and get some get some lamb. Uh, but thanks for coming on. Really no, nice great to work, guys. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's exciting times. It's don't get me wrong; there's going to be blood in the water. But um, looking past it, I think we've got to use the opportunity to reset and go again. And um, yeah, I think there's really exciting times for for Lamb ahead. The one thing, yeah. about all, one thing about all markets, they all cycle up and they all cycle down. It's just they're always going to do that. Yeah, I agree. The long term, the long term fundamentals, I think, is still good. It's just a, we're just in a, a bit of a, a downward cycle presently. But I think you're right. This is the opportunity to consider what kind of a industry you want moving forward. So it's been been good to chat and to um to hear your thoughts on it, Tom. So thanks for coming on. See you um see you when you got. Thanks, Matt. On. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Bye bye.